don't know that West Point's in New York. Most people, including myself until recently, thought that West Point was in Virginia. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's actually in New York, close to New York City. It's right on the Hudson River. Yeah. Can you hear yourself? I can. Mm-hmm. Yes, can you hear yourself? I can. Perfect. Um, no, actually, I, can, I can't hear myself. You can hear me, though. I can hear and you. And I can hear you fine. Okay, fine. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we'll let you go whenever you're ready. Okay. Okay. Hello, and welcome to another... Uh, let me start there all over again. Yeah, start it's starting to sound like the other thing. Okay. <laughs> Look at the camera. You were looking down. Sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I have to remember what the program name is. Exhibit A. Okay. Hello and welcome to Exhibit A. This is the program where we talk about legal matters, family law matters, and anything else that I deem that could be interesting to our audience. Uh, today I want to talk about a very common problem in family law cases and that deals with the sale of the family residence. Uh, Now, this is not a seminar. I'm not going to be talking about the legalities involved in the sale of a property, but I really want to talk about how it's done, especially when we've got people that are having difference of opinions. Now, uh, one of the things I want to share with my audience is that many years ago when I was in law school, I had a real property class like all law students do, and it was extremely complicated. I mean, they start from the very beginning of time about the ownership of property to the present day, and there's so much law that's involved. It's it's unbelievable. Really a fun class to take. But my story is this, is that at the end of the semester, just like in every class, there's one person that comes out number one. And uh, in my class, that person was a former real estate agent. And uh, I kind of figured out why after being in this business as long as I have and that is that real estate agents real estate brokers they know the industry and they know a lot more about the law and the specifics than even attorneys do and so for that reason I've decided to bring under our program none other than my good friend Nancy Valentine hi Don hi how are you wonderful thanks so much for having me Uh, it's it's my pleasure now I'm gonna going to disclose this is Nancy and I are good friends. We've known each other a long time and we have worked together a lot in our cases. And I could tell you that I love working with Nancy because she is a top-notch professional. She's a real estate broker. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about you in a more personal way so that our audience really knows who we have in our program today. Uh, Nancy is originally from the great state of New York. She grew up not too far from West Point. She then as she, after she graduated from high school, went to Illinois, where she studied at Northwestern University, graduated there. That's what, right. what was your major in? I was in the School of Music, and I was a professional voice student. Okay. And we'll, we'll, Can we we'll, cut that? <laughs> sure. I was in applied music, and my major was voice. Okay. And we'll, we'll explore that a little bit more, uh, because your next school was back in Juilliard. That's that, right. Okay. I stayed in uh, Chicago for a total of seven years, and of course Don's originally from Chicago, <laughs> so we had that in common. And I was actually in the chorus of the Chicago Lyric Opera, and then I decided I wanted to go on to my master's, and I went to the Juilliard School in New York. So I went back to New York, and I was there for one year. And then I went to Europe for the summer to take private voice lessons with a famous teacher, and I didn't come back for 11 and a half years. Because you were, you are, you were an opera singer. That's right. Which is really amazing to me, and it's very interesting that you somehow uh, got into real estate. 
but every time I see Nancy Valentine, the first thing I think of is, is this professional opera singer that traveled Europe for many years. So highly cultured, highly educated, somebody that's very sophisticated. Uh, I think that also what people should know is that she knows lawyers. She works in a lot of uh, law type of cases. In fact, you're an official sponsor of our local bar association, the Pasadena Bar Association, uh, where you attend a lot of the meetings. And so you attend a lot of the MCLE courses as well. Right, and I can thank my father for that, <sighs> who was a really tough tax attorney oh, in New York that. City, who practiced on Wall Street. And I also work with a lot of fiduciaries. So attorneys and fiduciaries work together a lot. I am an affiliate member of the California Professional Association, the PFAC, the Professional Professional Fiduciary Association of California. Very good. Okay. Well, let's start off with something really foremost on my mind, and that is your last name, Valentine. Okay. <laughs> I was born with that name. I okay. was blessed. Well, I wanted to make sure that you didn't make this up, because how do you get any better than having a last name of Valentine and being in the private sector? So my first question to you is, is, uh, is it a hindrance or is it helpful in your ability of uh, meeting people and you know, doing business? Oh, it's always been great. It was a wonderful stage name. It was my real stage name. It's a name that's used in almost every language. They have it in French, Valentin. They have it in Italian, Valentino, Valentina. Even in Russian, it is often a first name. So it's very international, transferable, and it was great for the stage. And it's a name that people remember. When they meet me, they very often don't remember Nancy. I'm sometimes called Karen or other things, but they never forget the Valentine. Well, what's really cool is when you become Nancy's friend, uh, on Valentine's Day, you usually get a little gift, a Valentine gift from Miss Valentine, and it's, it's really special. Uh, okay, so let's talk about divorce cases. I know that you and I, and not only me, but many people in my firm have worked with you in selling homes. You know, and the choice of a real estate broker is really up to the client. It's not up to the attorney. You know, we make suggestions when we can. Our audience ought to know that the attorney doesn't get any compensation. There's no kickbacks or anything like that uh, should we make a suggestion for somebody. But fortunately, many of our clients have used you in selling homes. And a lot of our cases are high conflict. I mean, they involve two people that weren't getting along during the marriage, and they certainly aren't getting along during the divorce. Right. So let me start off by asking you some questions about, about a divorce type of a case. Uh, People sometimes have differences of opinions, I guess, right? And, you know, you have to form a relationship with both people. I mean, you just can't, like, favor one person and stiff arm the other. How, how do you manage to do that? Well, the most important thing to keep in mind for divorce cases is a realtor or a broker has a fiduciary duty equally to both parties. That's different than the, the position that the attorney is in. Each of the clients is represented by a separate attorney. So that puts us in a very unique position. We can't take sides with either party, but we have to be fair and caring and understanding of both parties' feelings and their opinions. And a lot of it with divorce cases is that usually, I should say, one person wants to sell and one person doesn't want to sell. And 90% of the time, the person that doesn't want to sell is the one who really can't afford to stay in the home doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman. I've had them both ways. And so a lot of it is just getting a reality check. I never 
when I go in, never argue with somebody. I've been told by clients sometimes so-and-so came in from another firm and said, you can't stay here. You have to get out. And they start arguing with them. I never do that. I listen to their point of view. And if they want to stay in the home, I say, okay, let's break it down. Do you know how much it really costs to stay here? Do you know what your payments are? Do you know what the gardener costs? All of those. And in working them through it, very often I help them come to their own decision of how they can make it happen or that it really doesn't make any sense. And then they can go back to their attorney and think about what makes sense, both financially and timing-wise. So maybe we come up or they come up through the attorney with some sort of uh, compromise that they can stay in the home for a particular amount of time. You only get that way by listening to both people's point of view. And the result of that is I get the people to cooperate. Because with divorce cases, one of the biggest problems is obviously someone who's in the house who doesn't want to sell doesn't want to show it, doesn't want to clean it up. Mm doesn't want to say nice things. Sounds so when, familiar. That's right. And when so people come to look, they start saying bad things about the neighborhood or about the house. And that is not conducive to getting the highest and best price. So it's very important, in my opinion, to get them to participate in the process. So, so this isn't a seminar on how not to get your house sold, but <laughs> what are some of the things that you've seen people do to try to obstruct the process? Uh, they refuse showings. Uh, they won't give access. They won't allow us to use a lockbox. They have very restricted times and hours. They cancel the appointments at the last minute. And I mean literally the client and their broker are standing outside and they call up and they say, no, well, I'm not going to let them in. They have the house a mess. If they're animals, they have. They don't clean up after them. They, th thank you. That's a nice way to say it. <laughs> don't clean up after the animals. Or if they have kids, they leave toys and everything all over the place. And they just make sure that the home is not attractive, with the idea being that uh, then no one will want to buy it. They also very often will set a very high expectation on price. So one of the things that we do as brokers, we have to go in and give a comparative market analysis, which is to give a value to the home based on what other properties, similar properties, have actually sold for. So we compare. Let, let me stop you there for a second, because I do <laughs> want to get into that a little deeper. But before we leave the topic of how you're dealing with folks that aren't getting along, you, you, you just said something that's very striking. As attorneys, I didn't realize how uh, easy we have it, because we only have to represent one person. That's right. You know, and uh, you are communicating with both people uh, who you have fiduciary duties to, toward, and they have difference of opinions. And unlike attorneys, you get to talk to both sides constantly, and you kind of have to do that. That's right. That, that's, uh, that makes it a little bit stressful for you, I presume. It does, but it's very important that only one broker is involved. I have been involved with cases where the two couldn't agree, and so they decide to use two brokers, one representing the wife's interests and one the husband's. And what happens is the legal conflict that's already going on with the attorneys just comes into the home buying process or home selling process. And exacerbates and the exacerbates situation. And exacerbates it. And in those cases, it's even worse. Yeah. So that is something that I highly suggest that you don't do because it will never get done because they just continue fighting. Interesting. So going back to uh, some of the other challenges, okay, they have a difference of listing prices. Mm -hmm. and you were kind of touching on that. Mm -hmm. What do you do to determine you know, what the home should be listed as? Well, there are two ways. Uh, okay, can I stop you for a second? Let me ask you this before you, before you answer that question. People know that 
homes are going to sell, or at least there's the belief that they're going to sell a little less when there's a divorce in process, right? You know, if the rumor gets out there that this is a divorce sale, then the sharks start circling and stuff. Uh, is there any truth to that, to that statement? Well, my question would be, why would you let that be known? What do you do to, to not let it be known? It's if they ask why the sellers are selling, unless I have in writing permission from both parties to disclose that, I don't. It's very simple. I'm working for the sellers and for my clients. So if a buyer's agent or a buyer wants to know why are they selling, it's none of their business. Okay. Unless I have that permission. Now, sometimes there are telltale signs, like if one of the people have moved out, Perhaps the husband has moved out, and there's only women's clothing in all of the closets. <laughs> so what I might suggest then is that they put some male things around, mm. um, or the other way around, depending on how it is. But again, my fiduciary duty is to the client, and if it's not to their advantage to have that known, then why would I do that? Okay. So you're saying that there could be written agreements between parties that n neither She'll make it known that this is a divorce sale. Yes. And that would be in their interest to do so. It that would. Like. But that doesn't stop people from going on social media and talking about it. And if they do that, I have no control over that. Okay. Just like you as an attorney don't have control over that sometimes, I would imagine. Okay. So going back, I, and I'm sorry that I keep interrupting you, but you were in the middle of talking about listing prices. And how do you go about that? We do a comparative market analysis. First place, I would need to visit the home. And uh, then I put together a very long report about showing other similar properties that have sold, things that haven't sold. And then I come back and make a suggestion of a range of pricing. I also discuss with them what, if anything, they're willing to do to prepare the home for sale. And with my background in opera, the real thing that I'm really big on is staging, as you can imagine, mm. because staging will enhance the story and every home has a story. You want to bring out the best points of a home. You can't hide the bad points by any means, but you want to put a spotlight on those things that are the best aspects and attributes and the things that are going to attract a buyer the most. I also try to explain to them how we appeal to the greatest number of buyers. So they're different what we call buyer pools. So one may be someone who's going to live there who has young children. It may be downsizing people or it may be even investors if the home is not in, in good condition or it could be added on to. So I want to make sure that it appeals to the widest group of people. With divorce cases, sometimes the court has ordered the sale because the people have not agreed for a very long time. In that case, I do the report, and it is uh, given to both attorneys, and then they'll say, the judge will say, the listing agent will determine what the listing price is. That sometimes happens as well. And there's also provisions that um, if it's not sold, the house isn't sold within a period of time, that it'll be reduced by a certain percentage. Or uh, basically the, uh, the broker will be able to come in and do a new report and then discuss back what should be done. But those time frames, unfortunately, the court very often sets very long time frames. They'll say like after two months, and our market moves very quickly. It should really be after 10 days. Okay. Well, you've probably been in situations where uh, you got the house being sold, and you got some buyers, mm -hmm. and the only thing left is for people to sign the papers and one of the spouses refuses to sign the papers even though the price was what they were asking for it's a great deal mm -hmm. have you ever been in one of those situations i have 
And I cannot force somebody to sign something. And in real estate, everything is in writing. Verbal agreements do not exist. So in that case, I would have to throw the ball back at that person's attorney right. and say, here is the situation. And if the person still refuses to sign, it would be up to the attorney to perhaps take it to court. Yeah. And what, what our viewers ought to know is, is that the court can sign have the court clerk sign it on behalf of the party. That's correct. So uh, there's no obstruction that people you know people are going to try to get away with because th that property will be sold. <laughs> so you talked about like you know staging the property, and I know that anybody who's ever tried to sell a home is a little bit concerned about the, I guess they call it the curbside view of the home and you know what needs to be done. Some people think that there needs to be great improvements, new landscaping, a new roof, new additions, a new kitchen. Other people, uh, you know, think that nothing should be done. Uh, you know, typically what I hear from brokers like you is, is you know, what we're going to do what's necessary. So uh, what do you think the attitude ought to be of somebody that is trying to sell a home and they know that, you know, they've got to fix it up a little bit, but, you know, you know is there a, uh, uh, a return on investment if they're spending great amounts of money, you know, kind of changing the property? Well, Every home is different, and so it really is on a case-by-case -case basis. But my theory is always you don't want to spend a dollar and only make a dollar. So my goal is to spend a dollar and at least make two dollars, which means that if we spend $10,000, I would like to have the price, or I would estimate that the price is going to be raised by at least $20,000. So they get it back, plus they double their money on it. Usually it's a lot more than that, but it depends what the improvements are. Where people get a little confused is there's some basic home maintenance that we don't consider staging, which is, for instance, cleaning, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes even just cleaning carpets, having the home very, very thoroughly cleaned, including all of the light fixtures, all of the windows inside and out. That is a basic expense of selling that should not be factored in. Um, and then, of course, if the carpets are very stained and dirty or if they smell, that's something that's going to really turn off people. And so there's certain basic things that should be looked at. I'm not a big believer of redoing kitchens or anything like that because of the time involved and the money. And usually with divorce cases, money is an issue. And so you don't want to ask them to spend something that you really cannot justify. And it's not just money, it's time and inconvenience. When you do major things like kitchens, it's a great inconvenience to the people living in the home. So I think it's an awful lot of common sense of how to approach it, mm. but again, each individual case is different. Okay, and as a real estate broker, you uh, also have to deal with sometimes properties that had improvements that were not licensed? Not permitted. Permitted? Yes. What, how do you deal with that? Well, when I take a listing, uh, the first thing I do is pull up a preliminary title report, which will also tell me who's on title. But then we also ask the people, did you buy the home with these improvements in place? And if there's something that's glaring, then we try to find out if it is permitted. Because one of the biggest things in California, and it should be in every state in the union, is seller disclosure. And so if something is known that could have a negative impact on somebody's willingness to pay a certain price or even wanting the home, we have to disclose that up front. If it comes out afterwards, it could result in somebody canceling the escrow, or God forbid, if it's after the close of escrow, it could re result in a lawsuit. So we want to make sure I sit down again with both of the parties, and we ask a lot of questions. We discuss a lot of things. And I have had many properties, unfortunately, where there are unpermitted spaces. 
Uh, it's different from city to city. In the city of LA, you'll have much different regulations. They'll be handled differently from, say, the city of Pasadena or La Cañada or other places. So again, it's on a case-by-case basis. Okay. What I want to do at this point is kind of segue into a story. Okay, actually two stories. I'm going to tell you my story, and then I want you to tell me a story, okay? Uh, the story I'm going to tell you is somewhat real, somewhat hypothetical, okay? okay. It might be familiar to you. Let's assume that uh, you've got two parties that have been going through a divorce. Uh, the woman moves out of the home. The man remains in the home, okay? Now, while these parties were married and living together, they couldn't really afford the mortgage. It's Southern California, and they were low-income people, but somehow they scraped enough money to buy this home in the city of Los Angeles. But in order to pay that mortgage and to keep the bills paid, they started renting out rooms. rooms. And yes, and as of the date of separation, they had four rooms rented. They had three tenants that uh, had been there on a month-to-month basis, and they had one tenant who had been there for a long period of time. He'd been there for a year, and he's a veteran. In fact, he's a disabled veteran, okay? Now, these parties are moving forward with their divorce. The man really doesn't want to sell the home, but he's going to have to do so. And, of course, the wife who's moved out, she really wants this home sold because it's the main asset. So she's trying to pressure it sold. So you're given that type of a scenario. Looking at those tenants, what are you going to do? How do you, how do you help these people sell this house in light of the fact that there's people there under contract renting rooms out? You said that it's in the city of Los Angeles? Yes. Oh, the city of Los Angeles has very protective rules for tenants. And it's very, very simple. They have rights. And you mentioned one of the gentlemen had been there a long time, and he was a veteran, and he was disabled. Yes. It's going to cost them money to get the tenants out. And sometimes, or I could say the majority of cases like this, the people want to delay because they figure, well, maybe we'll get them to leave. Maybe we'll get to do this. You have to address it right up front. You have to talk to the tenants, see if they're willing to move. They have rights, and then we have to take the process. If someone will not leave and you have to get them out, then some of it will depend on who your buyer is. It could be because if a buyer buys the home and they're going to use it for their own use, then they have a right to put somebody out, but it's going to cost money. If it's someone who's disabled over 65, uh, it may cost them as much as $20,000 in the city of L.A., to get one person out. So these are all details and you have to know what is in the lease and you also have to know how long they've been there, a lot of information. So there's no simple answer to that one. But that one's going to get sticky. But not impossible. (laughs) Not impossible. Because you've actually handled a case like that for me. I I have. (laughs) Very, very sticky. And you did a a wonderful job for me, may may I say. So uh, let's conclude with your favorite story. Okay, Nancy Valentine's going to tell a story from the past that uh, we, I think we're going to find interesting. Well, I had a listing once. I was called in to do it, and it was actually first I was called in as a probate listing. There was a woman who had died, and she had a husband. It was her second husband. She had originally owned the home with her first husband. She got remarried. After 10 years, she decided to put her husband on title with her, but she also had a son. And so when she put the... Uh, her second husband on title, she also felt that she should put her son on. So at that point, without getting too detailed, the husband and wife had it as 
joint tenants, or we would say community property, in one half of the property, and the other half belonged to the son, and they were tenants in common with him. He was married at the time, so he also had a wife. So there were four of them. Well, he got a divorce from that wife, and he was married with another wife. And they brought me in, and I pulled the title to sell the home, and they assumed that it would be very easy. Well, there was a fourth person on title, and it was not the present wife. It was his past wife okay, of well, 25 years ago. Is this going to involve, like, trying to find a body or something? Well, that was the question. We pulled the preliminary title, and they okay. said, you have to prove that she's alive and willing to cooperate or that she's dead and have a death certificate. Don't tell me you brought out the forensic team at this point. Well, it was pretty hard <laughs> to find her, but we did. Okay. We found her, and she was alive and well and living in Orange County, oh my which wasn't even that far, but no one had s heard or spoken with her in 25 years. And when we finally got in touch with her, and I called her up and I said, you're on title, we need to know, she said, ah, I'll be glad to cooperate. <laughs> she signed everything faster than anything, but it was really because they didn't have a really great divorce attorney like Don Schweitzer because the real property had not been mentioned in the divorce settlement. So the only other way that that could have been solved would be if they pulled out the divorce settlement papers, which nobody had. The attorney was long gone. 25 years is a mm. long time. And if they'd been able to prove that the home had been given to the husband in the divorce settlement, but it hadn't been. Interesting. So, so did you have happy people at the end of this? Well, she was very happy because she got a quarter <laughs> of the proceeds. And uh, the son's new wife wasn't that happy, right. but it was it was pretty complicated. But we got it done. Cool, cool. I knew you would. I knew you did. <laughs> Nancy is uh, charming as you are. Uh, you're an extremely sophisticated uh, real estate broker. Uh, she could handle anything, and uh, I just I just love how you love your homes. How you tell the story. I've seen uh, you tell the story many times about the homes that you sell. And it has been our privilege for you to be on our program. Thank you very much. And thank you to our audience for tuning in again to our uh, series of Exhibit A. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. What